Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 17. Believe it or not, we're in chapter 17, and this is the 17th message in this study of Acts. And so we're going to keep moving through it this morning. You know, it's, uh, Acts is commonly known, and you may have heard it called this, the Acts of the Apostles, the Actions of the Apostles, and it chronicles those uh, early days in the life of the church. Uh, but it's better to think about it as the Acts of Jesus, right? Jesus, who's ascended into heaven, who sent his spirit uh, who's continuing his acts through first those apostles and the early church and those uh, first century disciples and who continues his work today through those who have been saved, the church today. And that's, of course, uh, those of us in this room. And so uh, we are part of his mission. We're a part of a movement and, uh, and a movement moves. All right. So a quick plug right here. Uh, sometimes uh, we were... We're going to provide, we're going to encourage uh, tonight, this morning, you're going to be encouraged to uh, individually be on mission uh, for Christ, but we do like to provide opportunities corporately for you to be involved in some different mission endeavors, and uh, either it's global or, or local, and we have a local opportunity for you to be involved in, and so you may have heard about this when you got to the concourse today, there'll be a table there, and uh, you'll be able to get a school supply list uh, and buy some school supplies to bless families and students who attend Westview K-8. through That is a school right here in our community that we've committed to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus in, to love them. And, uh, and so uh, please, 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 when you go out into the concourse today, uh, let's make sure we grab a school supplies list. Maybe you brought some school supplies this morning. That's also going to be the drop-off location for the next few Sundays. And uh, we want to bless those students and uh, while we're doing that, we get to be the light of Christ. And so a little plug there. Really weird transition. Have you ever lost your child? Have you ever been out somewhere? Have you ever uh, been in a crowd? Have you ever, if you, if you have small children, have you ever even for a short amount of time lost your child? Now, if you have, you just immediately just now remembered when that was. You don't forget that. Like if you really think, oh no, I don't know where they are. I've lost them. They may be in danger. You are flooded with some emotions and it stings pretty hard where you don't easily forget that. All right. I remember I lost my son when he was three years old at our house. All right. Believe it or not. So uh, we were, it was just me and him, Benson. Uh, he was, he's my middle son. He was three years old at that time. And uh, we, it was just me and him hanging out that afternoon. I can't remember where Rebecca and Emma was, but we came, where I, we came home to an empty house. And uh, we went in and I had some bags to bring in. So I was going back and forth from the car. I saw him go in the house, uh, but I was busy back and forth, back and forth. I come in, close the door, uh, get settled in and realize that it's way too quiet in the house to have a three-year-old in the house. And so uh, it, something was wrong. And so I began to casually make my way through the rooms and tried to uh, figure out what was going on and was calling his name and no answer. Well, all of a sudden you begin to uh, reach another level of, of panic and, uh, you know, you uh, begin your voice, your tone gets a little different. And, and so I begin to yell his name a little differently. And, and then just uh, I, I go very quickly to level 10. I mean, I am completely panicked. I don't know where he's at. It doesn't make sense to me that he's not answering me. What did he, did he leave? Did he somehow slip out the front door when I was coming in and out? So I'm running out like a lunatic screaming at my neighbors. Have you seen my son? Help me. I'm running inside. I'm, I'm contextualizing to the life of a three-year-old. I'm crawling around on his level, trying to figure out where he could have gone. I'm talking almost like a three-year-old, maybe buddy, where are you at? I'm doing everything I can finding toys that make noises that I know he likes to maybe lure him out. Of wherever he's hiding. I was completely losing my mind, right? But I was committed in that moment, if you've ever been there, 
to absolutely doing anything I could to reach my son who was lost. I was absolutely committed to do anything that I had to do to reach him. And when we get to this section in Acts, what we're finding here is Paul on his second missionary journey. And what we learn from Paul the missionary, we learn something about what it means for us to be missionaries, is that we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to reach the people that God's placed around us for Christ. Paul's left Philippi. He shared the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, and as he went into Thessalonica and Berea, uh, he uh, found uh, a synagogue there. The synagogue's in those places, uh, in that kind of that part of the rim, the northern rim of the um, coastal rim of the Aegean Sea. Uh, there was still, you know, heavily influenced by Jewish life. And so the synagogues there would have uh, been still a strong force in that community. And so he was working with the people who had a working knowledge of, of the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so he was able to go in being a Pharisee who got saved and really have a, a very effective ministry. And so he goes in and he finds the synagogues in Thessalonica and Berea. And uh, in both of those places, the gospel takes root. And as we've seen, when the gospel takes root and Jesus begins to be accepted in these different areas, not everybody's a fan of that. And so he gets run out of those towns. And he is escorted by a group of Christians, just kind of in secret, just to get him away. And he leaves Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, uh, Silas and Timothy uh, back in Berea. And he gets escorted by some Christians down the western coastal rim of the Aegean Sea down to a city that, if we paid attention at all in school, we'll remember, called Athens. All right? Called Athens. And as he walks into Athens, he walks into a city, he sees people that may have looked similar to people that he had witnessed to and evangelized along the way. But as he walks into the city and begins to take in the, sou- the sights and the sounds, he has kind of that like, I, I told you I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore type of moment. It's a completely different context. And he shows us when you get into a context like this that you're going to find very similar to the context we're in, how to be a missionary. Stand with your Bibles open. Acts chapter 17, beginning to read in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And he said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And so they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, uh, what these things mean. Now, all these Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the uh, Areopagus, uh, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets or some of your own poets have said. For we are all indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine, being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, of course, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he was given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, uh, the Areopagite, the Ario, and a woman named Demarius, and others with him. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for an opportunity to gather together to worship you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would fall down uh, in this place today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, Lord, that you've placed us right here where you've placed us for a reason, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the mission field that you've placed before us, Lord. I pray that you would help us uh, through the power of your word, the spirit working through your word, Lord, that you would help us to, in a fresh and new way, Lord, uh, have a burden, a renewed burden for the lost. Help us to remember, Father, who we are in you. Help us to remember today that we are not home yet. And as we journey in that direction, who we're called to be and what we're called to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul walks into Athens. He has a toto. We're not Kansas moment anymore. And it's really a moment that if, if you pay attention uh, to our world, you're going to have about the own culture that you, your own culture that you live in. Our culture, I think it is true that our culture has been largely influenced by Judeo-Christian values, not a perfect nation, uh, many flaws. But from its existence, our nation has been very influenced by the Bible. And, and most people uh, who uh, really take time to study and understand would agree with that, that there was an a, a extended period of time really until recently, you know, relatively, relatively recently in our nation's history, that most of the population had a working understanding of God's word and biblical value. That's rapidly changed in the last couple of decades. The American culture is growing more and more secular. We live in a culture where People are still very spiritual, but uh, they're, it's more secular than ever. There's more biblical illiteracy than ever. You even find that growing in the church. It's not, you don't have to look too far even in the church to find people who haven't read a, a, a testament of the Bible, much less the whole Bible. Uh, so biblical, biblical literacy is on the rise. Uh, secularism is on the rise. There's way more people today in our nation than there was 25 years ago who may see a sign from a football game on TV that says John 3.16 and think, John, who's John? 3.16, is that like a time, a.m., p.m.? Right, so the average 28-year-old living in a metropolitan area of America is probably going to not get that reference. So our culture is growing more and more secular, more and more biblically illiterate. So we have to ask questions. How do we represent Christ? Those of us who know him, who have been changed by the power of the gospel, how do we represent Christ as his ambassadors in a time and place that he's called us to be missionaries in that is growing increasingly, increasingly more unfamiliar with phrases and not even sure what to do with phrases like, have you been born again? Have you been saved? Well, saved from what? That's where we are. And we can learn a lot about how to be missionaries where God's placed us by paying attention to Paul's visit here in Athens. 
So he sent word for those who, with those who had escorted him into Athens. They're going back to Berea and he sends word. He says, hey, send, go ahead and send Silas and Timothy back here uh, to be with me. And in verse 16, he says, now while Paul was waiting for them. So he's got some time to wait for them to travel back down to join him. And it says he basically has some time to kill. So he's strolling through the city. I just love that idea. The apostle Paul just taking in Athens, going around kind of like a tourist, just checking things out. Maybe this is some time off from the mission. He's been working really hard. He's walked a long way. But if you know anything about the apostle Paul, he's never off the clock when it comes to ministry. He's never, he never takes time off from the mission. And he starts strolling around. He's checking some things out in Athens. A little bit about Athens. Athens was a very important city in the Roman Empire. It wasn't as dominant at this time as it once was, maybe a few centuries before the time of Christ. Corinth at this time has become the most powerful as far as political things and business goes. Uh, Corinth is the most influential city there, and Paul will get there next week. But it's still Athens. It's a very well-known city for its culture. It's an intellectual center. It's a think tank. It's where all the great ideas still flow out to the rest of the Roman Empire. It was a very important city. And it was a city well-known all over the world for its art, for its architecture, for its culture. And so there Paul is taking in this great city called Athens. And what does he do? Of course, it's Paul. He finds very quickly a synagogue. And he goes in the synagogue and he begins to do his thing. He begins to, to preach Jesus, but he becomes, it becomes aware to him very quickly that we're not Kansas anymore. Something's very different here. Something's very different. He's, he's realizing there's not a whole lot of people here with a Hebrew worldview. There's not a lot of people here with a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And what we see him do is instead of getting frustrated about that, instead of, uh, of hitting the secular worldview, these people who have no clue about what he's talking about, instead of plugging his ears and running out of the city, what do we see him do? We see him move into the middle of that city and do whatever it takes to engage everyday people with the gospel. And the way that he engages these people can really help us in the secular culture that we're living in. And there's three words here that jump off of these pages that can help us. And these aren't, I didn't come up with these words. Uh, these are, if, if you're familiar at all, if you've studied missiology, these are three words that are very helpful as you're seeking to be a missionary anywhere, but especially in, as we consider the secular context that we're called to share the gospel in. And here's the three words, reject, receive, and redeem. Those are the three points this morning. That as we walk through this culture, there's some things to reject, there's some things to receive, and there's some things to redeem. First thing's this, reject. When it comes to engaging the culture, there are some things to reject. See, often professing Christians have a problem and they make a mistake of, of going to one of two extremes when it comes to being confronted with a culture that's dark and that's sinful. And that's secular. There's two, uh, two extremes where you get things wrong. One of them, we could call it separatists, all right? Separatism. This is the idea that Christians should remove themselves from the evil in culture that we should create as much of a Christian bubble, bubble as we can, insulate ourselves from the evil of the world, and then just exist in that until Jesus comes back, right? Just hunker down in your bunker with Bibles and bullets until Jesus comes back, right? That's the separatist view. Then you have syncretism, all right? Syncretism is the idea that we, uh, you know, when we approach Christianity, it's, you know, sync up with the world around us and try to do, uh, in, kind of in the name of reaching people for Christ. Often you find people, uh, kind of syncretist mentality, you know, who maybe profess Christianity, who just kind of like jellyfish, just flowing and going with the currents of culture. Maybe even living lives congruent with the world's value system. Paul's immediate reaction in Athens 
rejects and has deep reservations about that second approach. All right, so we look at his reaction. So he's taken in the aesthetic beauty of Athens. He's taken in all these temples, all these great works of art that are lining the, lining the streets. And it says this, it says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. That word provoked. The Greek word there is translated into English as the phrase deeply distressed. But that really doesn't get to the heart of really what it means, right? It's, really, it's a really difficult word. To translate, there's no uh, there's no one English word that can capture capture it all. You know, it can even be translated as a seizure or a spasm or an outburst. Here's the here's the idea. Paul's mad. Paul sees this place full of idolatry, full of sin, full of sinful activity, and he's deeply disturbed to his core. He doesn't dabble in it. He doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't receive it. He sees it as highly offensive to the holy God who he believes is worthy of all worship, and he rejects it. And our reaction as Christians in the secular culture that we live in, in the world that we're walking through, as believers who have collided with the gospel should be the same. If Jesus has saved you, he's set you apart. He's given you a new nature. He's given you new heart appetites and desires. And our reaction when we see idolatry, when we see run into sin in the world, in our own life, should be a grieving over that sin. And it should be a spirit that's provoked within us to deeply disturb us. Sin should upset us. And if it doesn't make sense to you, right, if, if, that, if sin doesn't nauseate you like it does Paul right here, it may mean you either have a heart that's too eaten up with the idols in this world where it's, it's not making sense to you that these idols are very offensive to God, or it just might, might mean that your heart hasn't been changed yet. It might mean that you don't have a new nature. If you take a, if you take a fish and you put that fish in a body of water, what do you have? A happy fish, Right? Because fish like to swim around in water because that's what they're made for. That's the environment that they like to exist in. And if you could talk to that fish and say, if the fish could talk back and say, hey, man, how's that water? They'd be like, the what? How's the water? I don't have any clue what you're talking about. Because that's, that's what they exist in, right? It's all they know. It's their environment. But you take a cat, you put that cat in water. Right? Some of y'all look way too excited about the idea of putting a cat, throwing a cat in a body of water, right? But you, you, you try to put cat near, a cat near water, you, you survive that experience, you're going to learn some things. You're going to learn some things. You're going to learn that their nature is very different than that of a fish. One's made for the water, one's not made for the water. One wants the water, one doesn't want the water. One loves the water, one does not love the water. The cat's like, I don't belong here. That's not my environment. And there's some people who profess to know Jesus, here's the point, very simple, who live their lives and act way too much like a fish. Swimming around in the idolatry of the world as if they're made for it. That's not how a born-again believer with a new nature lives and exists in this world. And by the way, if you're having trouble identifying or thinking about many places where you feel like a cat in a swimming pool, it may mean you're a fish. If you can't think of a lot of places in this world or things in this world where it feels like you're a cat being thrown into a swimming pool, it may mean that you're a fish swimming around in the idolatry of this world. It may mean that this world is your home. So if you think of the culture as a big body of water, I guess you could say that the gospel changes us from fish to a cat. I know the dog people don't like that, that comparison, but just go with me. The gospel changes, changes us into gospel Garfields, right? They don't feel at home in this world. 
And one of the, listen, one of the best ways for us to engage a lost world is to stand unique from that world and to refuse to reject the value system of that lost world, to not sync up with it, to not swim around in it like it's our home, to reject idolatry, to reject it in our life and to reject it in the world. But here's the danger. Once we get that, once we understand the idea of a cat, like, yes, we, we should not feel comfortable in this world. Even beyond that, it should, it should provoke something inside of us. It should, it should make us upset. It should nauseate us. There's another extreme that you've got to avoid. Because we can respond. There's a, we have, we're in danger of responding in another way that's wrong, in a separatist way. Right? And think that the answer, now that, I, yeah, I'm a cat in this world. Now the answer is for me is to create enough of a subculture where I can feel comfortable enough and just kind of hunker down until Jesus comes back. And some of us can have this kind of mentality. If they, did, if they had a Christian mall and all they sold were Christian clothes and, and Christian music came playing through the speakers, I would probably shop there all the time. And some of us think about, man, if they had a movie theater and all they played were Christian movies, and Christian movies are great, but all they played was Christian movies and, um, you know, they had Christian restaurants and they had Christian gas stations, and they may have a Christian gas station. Have you all been to Bucky's? That, that may be from heaven. That place is pretty, pretty impressive. All right. I mean, how, how could it not be anointed somewhat by God? It's got a 30-foot showcase of beef jerky, right? I mean, it's pretty glorious. Have, you, have y'all not been, y'all not taken the, your pilgrimage out to Bucky's yet? Anybody been out there? No, some of you need to go. It's pretty impressive, right? It's like, it's like Walmart and Cracker Barrel and Wawa had a baby named it Bucky's. <laughs> But seriously, I think if they had something called a Jesus Jiffy and it was a Christian gas station and they had Jesus themed sodas and, and Jesus themed snacks and Jesus themed music coming through the speakers, you know, we would probably get kind of pumped up about that. And I don't want you to hear me wrong. Praise God for Christian businesses. Praise God for Christian establishments. Like we need those. Those are being used. Those are good things. Listen, but here's the point. God doesn't intend for us to spend the majority of our time in those places. If, there were, if they built a Christian theme park, I would probably go at least once because I'm a pastor. You might judge me if I didn't go just one time. But the more I read the Bible, the more I understand what Acts is calling us to be, who he's calling us to be. Man, put me in the middle of six flags over wherever because put me around a bunch of people who are lost, who are pagan. Because as long as I got breath in my lungs, I'm called to be in a dark world and to be light in that dark world. The whole idea of our church is Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt and the light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And we can't be light. If we're syncing up with darkness or if we're trying to separate from darkness, we can't be the light and the darkness that God's calling us to be. So Paul walks into this pagan city and despises the idolatry. He doesn't just plug his ears and run for the hills. He shows us that, hey, there's some things to reject here, but... Move forward into that dark world. And know as missionaries, there's also some things to receive. Second word, receive. Second point is receive. The marketplace mentioned in verse 17, you think we kind of go immediately like big flea market or something like that. It was actually an area, a very important area of Athens where, where all the important people and other people who would want to listen to important people or think that they're important people would come and share their ideas. It was like a cultural exchange of, of ideas, thoughtful debate and dialogue in their cultures. Does that sound familiar to you? Our version of that probably closest thing is Facebook. 
And Paul utilizes, instead of seeing that marketplace and hearing all of these ideas that would have been secular and and a lot of things he wouldn't have agreed with, instead of running from that, he steps in and he sees it as something to utilize. He, He receives that secular marketplace and even their spirit of debate, he receives it as a place for him to engage and to talk with people about Jesus. In verse 28, Paul quotes, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but we see that Paul even quotes secular poets and philosophers. In other words, he's not just riding around in his truck listening to Caleb all the time. That's great. But it, it kind of there's some biblical argument that he might grab him a George Strait CD every once in a while and put it in there and listen to it. Paul's listening to their music. He's familiar with their culture. Paul's walking through the mall and he hears, I can't get no satisfaction from the Rolling Stones. And he, he didn't run from it. He stops. He didn't say kids don't listen to it. He stops and, and hears it. I can't get no satisfaction. That's something we can use to talk about the gospel about. He's reading their books. He's listening to their music. He's watching their movies. Now listen, major word of warning here. There's a lot of young people in the room. I want you to listen to this. John 15, 19 Jesus reminds his disciples, he said, never forget you are not of this world. You are not a fish. You're a cat. Gospel Garfield. Don't forget that. You don't belong. Philippians 4, 8, Paul goes on to say, he says, hey, never forget what your mind needs to ultimately be consumed with. Whatever is true and honorable and just and lovely, commendable. If there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And and so we got to be careful when we're talking about receiving some things in the culture. What this is not is a green light or a license in the name of cultural research to go around and stick your head in as much cultural sewage, entertainment sewage as you can in the name of cultural research. That's not what we see in Paul's life right here. But he did familiarize himself with and engage with the thoughts of that culture, the art of that culture, the the literature of that culture in that city, read their books, ate their food, used their language, walked their streets. Hey, and there's some things in our culture that can be received, right? There's gifts of God's common grace, things that we can even enjoy, things that aren't necessarily distinctly Christian. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you think of some things this morning that aren't distinctly Christian that are good things? My mind immediately goes to food. Hence Bucky's beef jerky bar, right? I can think of a lot of things that aren't distinctly Christian that are good things. Donuts, good thing. Okay, I'm the only person here who likes donuts. (laughs) Birthday cake, anybody like birthday cake? Right? I like birthday cake and I've read the entire Bible, all 66 books. And believe it or not, there's not one verse that says anything about birthday cake. You know what? It doesn't mean I have to Christianize a birthday cake. It doesn't mean I have to make it Christian. It mean, I like the good old pagan Publix birthday cakes, my favorite kind. I love a lot of things, ice cream, fireworks, going to baseball games, technology, wireless internet, restaurants, going to the beach with my family. These are things in our culture that we receive. You don't find specific verses necessarily giving you permission to enjoy these things. You don't got to Christianize them. There are things that you can receive. And the idea is as you move along in life and receive those things, you get to engage your culture because your life intersects with non-Christians who are also enjoying those gifts of God's common grace. And you get to point them to Jesus. So we reject, we receive. And then the final thing this morning, the next thing we see is that there are things to redeem. Things to redeem. So Paul's in the marketplace and it says there's some Epicurean and Stoic pagan philosophers he's conversing with. 
Those Stoics, these are some, these will give you an idea of the different worldviews that he was interacting with there in Athens. The Stoics, they believed kind of like God is in everything. There's a spark, a, a kind of a divine spark in everyone. The Epicureans were very hedonistic. If it feels good, do it. Does this sound familiar? Instant gratification, act now, think later. Chase whatever will satisfy the desires of your flesh. That spirit is still alive today. So he's talking and conversing with very pagan people. And if you, let's just stop time out and think about what's happening. How is this possible? How is he having a civil, loving conversation with the same people who are guilty of the very sins that just a few minutes ago were nauseating him? How is that possible? The best way to... The best way to understand it is Paul is a man who has been changed by the grace of God, who sees cities and sees people and sees the persons that he comes in contact with, contact with through the lens of the cross. Do you see this city? Do you see this community? Do you see the people that you work with? Do you see the people in your family through the lens of the cross? What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? At the cross, what's happening? You see God the Father... Taking sin very, very seriously. You see him taking holiness very, very seriously. That's why Jesus is dying on the cross. But you also simultaneously see this unthinkable amount of compassion that he has in that moment for sinners who are guilty, who are the ones who have nailed Jesus to that cross. He sees people through the lens of the cross. He calls us to do the same thing today. Do we take sin and idolatry seriously? Yes, but we simultaneously have compassion for the people who are caught up in it. And we run to them with the gospel because we long for them to experience the same restoration and satisfaction in God through Christ that we know that we know that those idols can't deliver. They didn't deliver into our life. And we look out and see those people swimming in sin in our culture and in our community. And as seriously as we take their sin, we see them through the lens of the cross and run to them and have compassion for those sinners. That they may be saved by the same grace that saved us. Listen to this. As mad as Paul is at the sin, as mad as he is that his God is being robbed of the worship that he deserves, he's equally as mad and heartbroken that they're wasting their lives Worshiping idols that can't save them and can't satisfy them. And that's why he's willing to do whatever it takes. Let me ask you a question, a very convicting question that I even asked in my own heart this week. Are you more turned off? Are you more turned off by the sinful positions and shenanigans and decisions and lifestyles of the lost more than you're turned on for their potential salvation? Are you more turned off by the lifestyles of sinful people around you than you are turned on for their potential rescue and salvation? Paul does not curse the darkness. He doesn't go home. He doesn't retreat. You know what he doesn't do also? He doesn't set up a sound system and get like a cheap megaphone and start screaming through it from the other side of the street in an impersonal way. Like y'all think the sun out here is hot. Just wait till you, you feel the fire flames of hell. Turn or burn. Sanctify or chicken fry. You better turn. I don't have time to talk to you. I'm preaching up here. He doesn't do that. He sees the city through the lens of the cross and he walks into the heart of the city and he contextualizes to that culture and he begins to talk to them 
about a God they don't know in a way that they've never heard it described. In such a way that some of them call him a babbler. So I'm like, man, shots fired. That's kind of like, that's harsh. That's what some of y'all be calling me if I don't land the plane soon and preach too long this morning. But babbler, that's actually a word picture that means chicken pecking seed. That's what that means. It's called him a chicken. It's actually specifically talking about a picking, a chick, picking, chicken pecking seed. And he's, he's basically saying, man, you sound like you're a babbler. You sound like a chicken pecking truth from over here and over truth from over here and like putting it all together in some kind of casserole that don't taste right. You have some who are listening to him and there's something there. The way they say it, he sounds like a preacher of foreign divinities. But what intrigued them is it was new. And the way Paul presented it was something that their ears had never heard before, their heart had considered. In verse 20, we know that they love new things. And so they take Paul up to the place, the ultimate place where you discuss new ideas. The Areopagus, a little rock hill about 50 yards from the Parthenon. If you remember studying about that in school, in those Greek cities, they take the highest point in those cities and they put this temple and have a god or a goddess of that city and build a temple to them. Because they believe the higher you were, the closer you were going to be to the gods. So at that highest point in Athens, you had the Parthenon, you had a temple there built to the goddess of Athena. And within 50 yards of that, you had this, this bald rock. It was called Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And that's where the elite would gather. So you, if, you, if you were heard in the marketplace, the next step up, you're going to the big leagues. You were going up to talk to the elite. So he's there with 30 or 40 elite men the most intellectual people in that culture. And Paul says in verse 23, he says, hey, guys, I've been walking around your city. I can tell you're religious people. He knew that that would be a compliment. They prided themselves on that. And he says, and I noticed an altar. Now think about this. We're talking about redeeming stuff. He could have easily walked past that altar, the altar that he's about to redeem. It was another altar to a false god. He could have rolled his eyes at it and said, there's another one to move on. But instead, led by the Holy Spirit, he uses that as a bridge to the gospel. The way we communicate to the unsaved should build bridges to Jesus, not build up walls to keep people away. So he redeems this altar. Did you know most things in culture can be redeemed? Right? Not everything is simply good or bad. Right? The internet has some really bad stuff that you can find out there on it. But you know, it's also what we're, going, what we're broadcasting this service with this morning. We're sending the gospel over the airwaves through the internet. There's a lot of bad things you can get into on the internet, but it's also something that held some of your small groups. You utilized it and redeemed it and used it to hold some of your small groups together through one of the most difficult years we've ever been through last year, through 2020. It's redeemable. Social media is redeemable. I don't know if y'all know this, but sometimes people can get ugly and say mean things on social media. I don't know if you realize that. But it's also a place for encouragement. It's also a place where you can pray, you can evangelize, you can point people to Christ. Most things in culture can be redeemed. So he redeems it. He takes this altar. He says it has this inscription on it to the unknown God. So basically they created, they were so superstitious, they were making sure they didn't, they weren't leaving out any false gods that may be out there. So it was like a junk drawer way, you know, way for them to make sure they were worshiping every God in their minds that were in existence. And Paul says that altar to the unknown God, and he uses it as a launching pad. He redeems it and says, basically is saying this. Let me tell you about a God you can know. He's a God who made everything. I haven't seen a God in this city who claimed to do that. He's a God who 
is the one and only true living God and he created everything in existence, every molecule in existence. He created everything that you see, everything that you can't see. He created every single one of you guys that are standing here right now. And if he's that big, basically what he's saying there, the Areopagus is he's saying, you think you can fit him in a temple? You think you can really fit him in a house? You think you can capture him with your hands in one of these statues? And what he begins to do, he begins to dismantle their idolatry. He begins to to, to break down the stupidity of them worshiping things that they made with their own hands. He's saying this, this is, he's different than the idols that you're worshiping. Because these worship, these idols that you've been worshiping, you're having to go serve. Idols demand that you sacrifice. Idols Idols demand that you serve. But I'm telling you about a God who made everything, who came and put on flesh. And the Bible says that Jesus came and said, I do not come. To be served, but to serve. And he went to the cross. And he died in your place. And he rose from the dead. And he's the king of the universe. And Paul's going to get there. Preaches them a a sermon there on on Mars Hill. He knows how pluralistic they are. He knows how polytheistic they are. He knows they don't have a Hebrew worldview. You know what he does? He, He starts at base level. He starts at base level. And by the way, that's where, listen, if you're going to be serious about evangelizing, you need to understand that most people you're going to be engaging with do not have a working understanding of scripture. And you're going to have to go back to the beginning and help them understand creation. You're going to have to help build a biblical framework within you. And within that, then you can begin to help them understand why Jesus had to come and die on the cross and why it's important that he rose again. So he starts at a base level. He starts with creation. He tells them, listen, God's bigger than anything in this city and anyone in this city has given him credit for. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He determines all things and he's, he's in control of everything. That's what he's saying. He, he allots all these different periods and places. He's in control of you standing before me right here. And, and what he's alluding to right here and them searching for truth and grasping for truth. He's in control of some of you being right here right now and in control of what's happening in your heart. As some of you are grasping, you feel him drawing you. He's that big and in control and in charge. And then Paul redeems some modern literature from the day. That line there, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you see that? For we are indeed his offspring there in verse 28. That actually comes from a few centuries before this time. A poem was written about Zeus. He pulls that from that secular poem about Zeus. For we are indeed his offspring. And what he's trying to hammer down into their minds is, listen, every human has a common ancestor whose name is Adam. And every person descends from Adam. And it means just what Jesus said or God said about Adam is true for you. That you're made in the image of God. The Imago Dei, the fingerprints of God are on you in a unique way compared to the rest of creation. Which means you're made to worship him. We don't worship him because of our sin, but we're made to. And Paul's point is this. Because I'm made in his image, because I'm his offspring, it means I'm not God. I'm subordinate. And if that's true... And if he's that big, well, yeah, it is kind of silly for me to start trying to worship him through statues made of wood, metal, and stone manufactured by a created person. So Paul redeems their literature. But what I want you to see in this sermon, and this isn't the complete sermon we believe that Paul preached on Mars Hill. On the Areopagus, those guys would like wax eloquent for like two or three hours. 
So it's very likely that he preached a really long sermon, and these are the main points. And as he gets to the end of his sermon, what you see is he's redeeming this altar. He's pointing them to the bigness of God. He's helping them understand the foolishness of their idolatry, but he takes it to Jesus. As you find creative ways to redeem things in this culture, never forget that all biblical and all biblical evangelism, all roads lead to Jesus. So he takes them to Jesus. There's things that we can redeem. You know, I, I, uh, I've shared with y'all before that I look for things to redeem in culture, especially with my kids. I, I've redeemed a lot of lines from Disney movies. All right. There's a lot there you can redeem. All right. So um, I, I understand my kids are uh, being raised in a secular culture. Do I, am I foolish enough to think that some that's not going to try to seep its way into their life so I could try to lock them away and only show them, you know, a bunch of movies where vegetables sing about Jesus all the time and let them only see that until they get 18 and then set them loose. Or I could walk alongside them in appropriate ways and allow them to see Disney movies, but take lines in those movies and redeem them and use them as gospel teaching opportunities. I've shared with y'all before, my daughter's four years old. We we're watching Little Mermaid and I watched it so many times. I have all the songs memorized. Y'all want to hear a Little Mermaid song this morning? I'm not going to sing it, but it got to that part where it says she's in that cave and, and she's just this teenage girl. No one understands her and she wants more. She says, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? When did you think my collection's complete? What did you think? I'm the girl, the girl who has everything. I've got gadgets and gizmos of plenty. Who's this? What's it's galore? Think of a bobs. I've got plenty, but who cares? Who cares? I want more. And I paused it and I turned around to my four year old. I'm like, that is a bratty little teenage little mermaid who is not content with what she has in life. And use it as an opportunity to say contentment's found in Jesus. Oh, oh, sorry, Eric. Is being the princess of the entire sea not good enough for you? You have to have more. Having your father be the king of the sea, is that not enough for you? Begin to preach a gospel message and turned around and she had no clue what I was talking about. <laughs> but you can ask my kids. It's, it's very common for us to walk out of a movie and to go eat dinner or to have a conversation and to pull things out of that movie to help teach them things about the gospel. Often I'll help them understand the narrative within that movie of most movies. It's just borrowed from the great redemption narrative of God. There's things that can be redeemed. I redeemed something recently with a conversation I had with a man who asked me, um, you know, I, uh, I get into a lot of conversations simply by asking people, what do you do? Because I know it's coming back, right? Pastor. And then I'm like, boom, let's go, all right? So I got in a conversation like that. And by the way, you can have a conversation like that tomorrow at your work by just saying, hey, what did you do yesterday? Church is probably going to come up because they're going to ask you. And so I had a conversation with this guy. And in that conversation, he asked me what I do. And I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, what church? And I said, uh, Schindler Drive Baptist Church. And he said, Schindler, like Schindler's List? And I went, yeah. He goes, well, that's an unfortunate name. And I said, well, have you seen the movie? He said, yeah, it's been a long time ago. Well, Schindler's actually the hero of the story. It's because of, it's a true story because of Oscar Schindler. 1,100 Jews who would have died, who would have been burned alive, were saved. That kind of reminds me of another story. Redeemed it. Don't miss opportunities to find creative ways to redeem things in culture and point people to Jesus. But don't forget that all roads in biblical evangelism lead to Jesus. Then Paul takes it from this aerial view of God down to a 
personal level. And he's basically saying this, and I'll summarize the rest of the sermon. He's saying, guys, God's revealed himself to you on creation. For a long time, you've lived in ignorance of it. And those days are over because now you know the truth. Now you know there's coming a day, there's a pointed fixed time in history when every single person, including every single one of you guys, the elite of Athens, are going to stand before Jesus Christ. And you're either going to stand before him as judge or you're going to stand before him as savior. I want to see you stand before him as savior. Therefore, repent and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And about, I feel like it's about that time we do get, it's implied here in this sermon that it's at about this time they pull the plug, they turn off his mic. But he brings them to the point of a decision. And it says that some mocked, it says some considered, and it says but some believed. Some mocked, some considered, but some believed. And those are going to be the responses that you get as you go out of this room this week and you're serious about the mission. Some are going to mock, you're going to get the red light. Some are going to consider, and there's a yellow light, and that's good news. That's, that, that's a win. And it says some are going to believe you're going to get a green light as you continue to be faithful. And what's going to motivate us to leave this room today and be on mission for Jesus Christ? Listen, it's the same thing that motivated Paul. It's this. It's remembering that Jesus saw us in our idolatry and did not is, is repugnant and is provoked in his spirit as he was about our sin. He saw us in our idolatry and he didn't run. He pursued us and he stepped forward. He laid down his life and he did what it took to save us. He did what it took to save us. Anybody wondering whatever happened to Benson that day in my house? So I was freaking out, running through my house, wondering how in the world am I going to explain this to my wife? I'm going to have to call her. And say, I lost something. What'd you lose? No, it wasn't the keys. It wasn't the remote control. It was our son. But I stopped in my house. And I remember even saying a brief prayer at one point and kept moving and stopped. And I heard, I began to hear like a smacking noise and began to walk into our kitchen following that noise. And I went over to our pantry and I opened up the pantry. And looking down at the bottom of the pantry, living his best life, was Benson surrounded by candy with a lollipop in his hand where he'd been camping out for about 10 minutes. And it's really funny because I opened the door and the light hit him and he like panicked and just took the lollipop out and said, lollipop, like come on in and join the party, peace offering. You know what, I I jerked him out of the pantry and as mad as I was, listen, what overrode that emotion was the emotion of love and I squeezed him. Why? Because my son who was lost is now found. That's the gospel. Some of y'all are hiding in your sin. Some of you are wrapped up in idolatry. Some of you are giving your lives to the idols of this world. You're rejecting an invitation to, to receive Christ, to receive new life, to receive a new nature, to receive righteousness in the sight of God. And you continue to live your life hiding in sin in the throes of idolatry. And God's walking through this room this morning calling your name. And I implore you to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. And there's others of you. I want you to think about that story. Any of you as a dad, you understand that story that I just shared with you. And it didn't matter, it, it didn't matter how long I had to stay up. It didn't matter how far I had to go. A dad who thinks his son is lost will do whatever he has to do 
whatever it takes to reach him. And if you're a believer here this morning, I want you to think about this. Think about how far God went to reach you. Think about the price he paid to pursue you and take you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Think about what he did and the extent to which he went to reach you. And then ask this question. How far am I willing to go reach people who are in that same place I was? Let's pray.